Hello there, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and your host here on Last Week in the Church. This is the show where we take some stale leftover headlines about the Vatican and the global Catholic Church, throw them in the skillet, sprinkle on our secret Crux brand spice and sauce, serve them up piping hot and delicious. Here's what we've got for you this week. First, chaos at Caritas. The Pope essentially places the global Catholic charity Caritas into receivership, decapitating its leadership, appointing his own interim team, and triggering a sort of root-to-branch restructuring. We'll talk about what might be going on there. Second, more trouble for the trial, the Vatican's trial of the century. Just when you think it can't get more surreal, it actually does. That happened on a couple of fronts this week. We will break down what happened. Third, the curious case of Belgium. The bishops of Belgium just came and went from the Vatican on their annual odd, or not annual, but their every five year odd limited visit. And by all accounts, it was a peaceful, happy, warm, friendly exchange, which is odd because the Belgian bishops on at least one hot button front recently blatantly defied the Vatican. At least that was the impression. Question is, why weren't there any fireworks? We'll try to make sense of it. Fourth up this week, bishops in the dock from Hong Kong to Eritrea. Bishops are running afoul of the regimes under which they live. We'll try to explain who is most at risk in all of this. And then finally, the Pope and Ukraine on the nine-month anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Pope Francis writes a plaintive letter to the people of Ukraine to assure them of his closeness. We'll try to make sense of how the Pope is trying to position himself on the defining conflict of our time. All that and more is waiting for you after a short break, so please stick around. Hello again, everybody. Happy Tuesday to you. Happy Tuesday, November 29th in the year of our Lord, 2022. Last week, I told you about the surgery on my esophagus I recently had to undergo. Many of you have written in to express that you're praying for me, just good wishes, good vibes. I want to say thank you for all of that, and please do keep those prayers coming. I am convinced, even though I'm not the world's most spiritual guy, nevertheless, I'm convinced they do make a difference. All right, we begin this week with the Global Catholic Confederation of Catholic Charities, known as Caritas Internationalis, Caritas International, which is headquartered here in Rome at the Vatican. It is, as I say, a federation of roughly 160 or so Catholic charities that are present in more than 200 nations around the world. In the United States, Catholic Relief Service, which is the official overseas development arm of the U.S. bishops, would be part of the broader Caritas network. Now, usually operates in a kind of quasi-independent way from the Vatican, quasi-autonomous. It has its own elected leadership, so there is a president who is in charge. Usually this is a cleric, generally a cardinal. Since 2015, it has been Cardinal Luis Antonio Tagle or Cardinal Chito Tagle of the Philippines. And there's also an elected secretary general who is the kind of day-to-day CEO. This is usually a lay person. Most recently, there's been an Indian who has French citizenship. 
by the name of Aloysius John. And Caritas, just last week, was holding its sort of plenary assembly. This is the first time they've actually been able to get together since the outbreak of the COVID pandemic in 2019, so it was kind of a big deal. And they were merrily, you know, having their meetings and doing their normal business when maybe not quite out of a clear blue sky, but certainly in a way that surprised many people taking part in this meeting, not to mention people on the outside, Pope Francis issued a decree, which essentially, as I said at the top, places Caritas into receivership. That is, the Vatican temporarily is taking control of the organization. Pope Francis has dislodged the entire leadership team, including Cardinal Tagle, most pointedly, including the Secretary General, Aloysius John, and his whole administrative team. So they're all out. The Pope has appointed an interim administrator, an Italian layman who is known euphemistically as an organizational consultant. Basically, he's the kind of guy you bring in when an organization is in deep trouble and you need to get it through a crisis and then sort of rebuild, all right? So that's the, the person the Pope has brought in. And all this is leading towards a, an election in May of 2023, where Caritas is supposed to choose new leadership and also adopt revisions to its statutes, that is, its internal rules. Basically, the idea being to clarify its mission and also its relationship to the Vatican. Make no mistake, this is basically a Vatican takeover. And this is, interestingly enough, the second time in a decade this has happened. It also happened under Pope Benedict. Then, too, there was a secretary general that, the, for various reasons, ran afoul of the Vatican. At that time, it was a Zimbabwean-born British laywoman by the name of Leslie Ann Knight. The Secretary of State barred her request to run for a second term as Secretary General. Then they pushed through a revision in statutes. As I say, that was under Pope Benedict. Now it is happening under Pope Francis. Now, a decade ago, the issue seemed doctrinal. That is, is Caritas upholding Catholic teaching faithfully? Like, is it partnering with organizations maybe that promote family planning and birth control? That sort of thing. Now the issues seem more related to management and administration. There were concerns that, you know, maybe the leadership in Caritas was a little too heavy-handed. Also questions about, you know, how much of the money that flows through Caritas is actually reaching needy people versus how much is being spent on administration and that kind of thing. But in any event, it is just a reminder that Caritas can act autonomously all at once and can sort of tell itself that it is in the Vatican, but not of the Vatican. But at the end of the day, we have had two reminders within a 10-year span that when a pope gets a bee in his bonnet about Caritas, he has all the tools he needs to remind them of who was actually in charge. Footnote to this story, it also raises some interesting questions, doesn't it, about Cardinal Tagli. Up to this point, he has been seen as a key ally and a stalwart champion of the Pope Francis agenda, and it has been assumed that he had Pope Francis's full backing. And that had propelled him towards the top of many short lists to become the next Pope. 
Now, this situation, although a subsequent Vatican statement attempted to spin this in a positive way, and Cardinal Tagle is going to continue to have a role in Caritas as a kind of liaison between the interim administrators and the national level Caritas organizations. Nevertheless, it does not look good for Cardinal Tagle because whatever problems that compelled Pope Francis to act obviously happened on Cardinal Tagle's watch, and the Pope was willing to allow that impression to take root. So be very interested to see what this does in terms of perceptions of Cardinal Tagle. All right, moving on. The Vatican's trial of the century, where you have 10 defendants, including for the first time a cardinal facing criminal trial for alleged financial crime. It has been going on for almost a couple of years now. It has, well, to say it has had more twists and turns than the bold and the beautiful or days of our lives is probably an understatement. This is the kind of soap opera that a team of Hollywood screenwriters probably could not have invented. And we had a couple more surreal twists this week. For one thing, the prosecution introduced a recording of a phone conversation between Pope Francis and Italian Cardinal Angelo Beciu, who is kind of the primary defendant in this trial. Beciu is on trial for a variety of things, but one of them is allegedly illicitly diverting money from the Vatican to a lay woman security consultant by the name of Cecilia Maragna, who has been described as the Cardinal's dame in Italian press coverage. So this was a phone call Beciu had made to the Pope right before the trial began, basically asking Francis to sign something saying that Francis had authorized those transfers of monies. And if you look at the transcript of the call, it seems pretty clear that Pope Francis is saying to Beichu, yes, I remember doing that. Now, the prosecution introduced this tape on the idea that, because this was made by one of Beichu's relatives without the Pope's knowledge, the idea was it's going to make Beichu look bad, that he is secretly, you know, surreptitiously recording the Pope. The thing of it is, though, from a defense point of view, this seems to bolster the defense's core argument which is that whatever Beichu did, he did with the full approval of his superiors. And therefore, if he committed a crime, so did they. Or to put, differently, it, put it differently, if he had the full approval of his superiors up to and including the Pope, how can you call that a crime? That's the basic defense case. This tape would seem to support that. The prosecution also introduced excerpts from text messages that Beichu had exchanged with some of his relatives. One of them quotes Beichu as saying, the Pope wants him dead. Clearly, this is not meant to be taken literally. Beichu was not actually suggesting the Pope was, you know, dispatching albino self-flagellating assassins to kill him. But what he meant was, the Pope is now very hostile to me and was sort of explaining, expressing perplexity about where that came from. Whether that helps or hurts either the prosecution or the defense, I don't know. Here's the other sort of borderline surreal thing that happened. The prosecution's star witness is an Italian monsignor by the name of Alberto Perlasca. used to be the head of the finance office in the Secretary of State. He was the architect, really, of the controversial 
real estate deal in London that is at the heart of this trial. But as the investigation of that deal began to gather steam, Prolaska basically switched sides and volunteered to become a whistleblower for the prosecution and therefore, you know, rat out basically his former colleagues and the Secretary of State. So for the first time, he took the witness stand this week and was asked about, you know, what went wrong with this London deal. And what Perlaska's testimony boiled down to is this. First of all, at the detail level, this was all worked out by an aide in my office, a guy by the name of Chirabasi. So it wasn't me, it was this other dude. It is what American prosecutors would call the some other dude did it defense. And he said at the big picture level, this was approved by all of my superiors. And he added, I never asked them what their reasons were because we don't do that. The assumption in the Secretary of State is that if they don't tell you, it's because you don't need to know and you don't ask. So basically, Prolaska's defense boils down to it was everybody else but me. Now, how credible that is going to prove to be as the three-judge panel weighs this case, I don't know. But it's an interesting twist, I would say. You know, look, stay tuned, but you don't have to do it with bated breath. This trial is going to still take a while before we get to anything resembling a denouement. All right. Third, the curious case of Belgium. So 18 months or so ago, the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, once upon a time, it was known as the Supreme Congregation in the Vatican because of the authority it was perceived to wield. The CDF issued a ruling basically saying that Catholic clergy may not issue blessings for same-sex unions. Basically, the idea was inevitably those blessings equate or suggest a kind of parallel between same-sex unions and sacramental marriage, and the church cannot do that. Therefore, clergy must not issue these blessings. I said, you know, you can certainly issue blessings to individual people, but same-sex couples as such, no fly zone, okay? Not long after that, the Flemish-speaking bishops in Belgium approved a right for blessing of same-sex unions. Now, they're, of course, not the only ones. I mean, German bishops have done the same thing. The difference is this, that when the Germans recently, the German bishops recently came to Rome for their odd limited visit, their whole synodal way, this, this sort of consultation process they've been involved in, including this issue of blessing same-sex unions, was massively controversial. And they had to have a bilateral meeting with Vatican officials. They had to put out a statement. The Vatican asked them for a moratorium. The Germans said, no, we don't know where that is. But the impression was tension, you know, kind of two sides at loggerheads, right? Now, the Belgian bishops, who have done much the same thing, at least on the issue of blessing same-sex unions, they came and went on their odd limited visit this week. There was no such atmosphere of tension. There was no such bilateral meeting, summit. There was no statement put out afterwards indicating the two sides had failed to reach agreement. On the contrary, everybody talked about how warm and fuzzy this whole exercise is. So. What is the deal here? Well, there are probably two points worth mentioning. One, everybody involved with this will tell you that the Belgians were very careful, unlike the Germans 
in many respects. The Belgians were very careful at every step of the way to keep the Vatican informed about what they were doing. So whether the Vatican agreed with it in every particular or not, they at least were not surprised. They were not blindsided. There was apparently pretty robust communication along the way, which probably took some of the edge off. You know, the other point, of course, is that Belgium simply doesn't have the tone-setting global significance of Germany. They can be regarded more as a kind of isolated individual case, whereas the notion is that when the German church catches coal, or when the German church sneezes, rather, the rest of us catch coal, right? One footnote, you now have two important bishops' conferences in Western Europe, at least, who have publicly, blatantly, and explicitly defied a doctrinal decree from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And at least so far, there have been no public consequences. Bishops have not been wrapped on the knuckles. Nobody's been fired. You know, the Pope has not brought the hammer down on anyone. He is apparently content to let this play out. Consequence? What is the sort of magisterial status now of a doctrinal decree from the CDF? I would say you certainly can't call it binding anymore, can you? I would compare it to one of those travel advisories the U.S. State Department puts out, you know, after a coup someplace. They'll say, you know, we recommend you don't travel to this location. Doesn't mean you're going to get arrested if you do. Doesn't mean the State Department is going to deploy, you know, some police force to stop you. They're just saying we recommend you don't do it. And if you do it, you do it at your own risk. Well, that's kind of where we are in the issue of blessing same-sex union, isn't it? Interesting case. All right, fourth up this week, bishops in the dock. So this week, Cardinal Joseph Zinn, 90-year-old Cardinal Joseph Zinn in Hong Kong, was convicted of the crime, along with five other defendants, of failing to properly register a pro-democracy organization of which he was a sponsor under the draconian new national security law imposed by Beijing and Hong Kong, that's now a crime. Zen and the other defendants were convicted. Zen was ordered to pay a fine. There's no jail time. He was ordered to pay a fine of about 500 bucks. Presumably he's going to do it. He has been sort of kept his powder dry. That is, he has not publicly responded, at least yet, to the verdict. It is probably true, as veteran columnist and activist on behalf of religious freedom Nina Shea has observed, that the net effect of this trial is at least temporarily to muzzle the most globally prominent critic of the Chinese regime, and that is Cardinal Joseph Sin. However, I would suggest that if you want to pick a bishop to be really worried about this week, I mean, Sin is still free, right? He's not behind bars. In theory, if he wanted to, he could relocate to Rome or, or the States or any place else in the world and continue his criticism of the Chinese regime. You know, I mean, he's got options. You want to pick a bishop to be worried about. Here's the guy I would direct your attention to. Bishop Fika Mariam Hagos Salim of Eritrea. And Your Excellency, I'm sure you're not listening to this because you're currently in prison with no internet access, but anybody who knows the bishop, let me just right now issue a public apology because I'm sure I just horribly mispronounced your name, but best I could do. In any event, Bishop Salim of uh, Eritrea. Eritrea is a one-party state subject to 
fairly brutal authoritarian rule. It routinely ranks near the bottom of most indices of human rights, of religious freedom, of press freedom, and so on. The Catholic Church for years now has been a particular target of the regime in Eritrea because it is one of the few organizations in the country that will at least occasionally voice public criticism. In retaliation, the regime has taken control of all Catholic hospitals in the country. They have shut down all Catholic schools in the country. They occasionally arrest clergy and Catholic activists. Bishop Saleem was actually arrested in October. He remains behind bars in the country's most notorious prison. Let me point out that in Eritrea, you can be arrested without any legal charge against you ever having been issued. You have no right of appeal. You have no right to a lawyer. You have no right to visitors. So we know the bishop is behind bars, and there is no obligation for them to give you a trial. They don't owe you a day in court. If they deem you a threat to national security, you can languish as long as they want. Recently, an Orthodox patriarch who had been deemed a threat to national security actually died in an Eritrean prison after having been held in solitary confinement for 16 years. And he was never charged with a crime, never put on trial, never given an opportunity to defend himself. That may well be Bishop Salim's fate. Currently in, in Eritrea, the estimate is there are somewhere between two and 3,000 Christians imprisoned for their faith. And when I say imprisoned, by the way, don't think, you know, a modern American prison where, you know, everybody has a cell to themselves with a sink and a toilet where there are shower facilities, where there's a medical clinic, where there may be a library, exercise yards, things like that. In Eritrea, prisons are often used shipping containers, those corrugated metal containers that are simply put into the desert and people are crammed into them. So they get suffocatingly hot during the day, bone-chillingly cold at night, no toilets, no exercise, no nothing. The fatality rates are just absolutely off the charts. The only time that people generally get out of these situations is when there is an international pressure campaign. Some years ago, there was a well-known evangelical gospel singer who had been arrested by the Eritreans an international coalition involving Amnesty International, Christian Solidarity Worldwide, and other groups came together, brought significant pressure to bear on the Eritrean government. She was released. Remains to be seen whether the Catholic world will steal a page from the evangelical playbook and get equally serious about trying to pressure the Eritrean government to do something for Bishop Salim. One certainly hopes that that happens. Finally this week, the Pope and Ukraine. So Pope Francis this week released a letter to the Ukrainian people on the nine-month anniversary of the war with Russia, the Russian invasion. The headline of which was him telling the Ukrainians, your pain is my pain. Talked about how rivers of blood have been unleashed in Ukraine. How young people who should be preparing for their futures have instead been forced to take up arms in the defense of their country, how Ukraine is constantly in his thoughts and his prayers, 
and how much he wants the madness of this war to end. Now, you know, these are all things that in various ways Pope Francis has said before, but he brought them all together in this one document. Now, what are we to make of this? Well, I mean, first of all, I think you have to assume the Holy Father is absolutely sincere in everything he said in this letter. And he thinks it is important to say it again and again and again and again on the hopes that eventually it will sink in. But beyond that, I think there are probably a couple of other things. One is, I think advisors around Pope Francis are very sensitive to the idea that his perceived softness on Russia, that is, the fact that he has not condemned Putin explicitly, that he often hesitates to name Russia explicitly as the aggressor in this conflict, and that, of course, because he's trying to keep lines of communication open, that his perceived softness on Russia might one day be compared to, say, Pope Pius XII perceived silence or softness on the Nazis during the Second World War. And I think they're trying to build a paper trail that future historians can point to to say this pope was not a pope of silence. I think the second thing is Pope Francis clearly wants to keep alive the possibility that he personally or the Vatican corporately could play a role as a peacemaker, as a reconciler in this conflict. Now, he faces very steep odds there. I mean, the Russians, just for all kinds of reasons, historical, cultural, socio-religious, do not trust Rome and never have. You know, they see Moscow as the third Rome, a rival to the claims of spiritual supremacy made by the Pope in Rome. And there's just a kind of built-in colossus, cultural colossus there, that means the Russians probably would never take any Pope seriously as a neutral broker. Ukrainians, on the other hand, have been somewhat disheartened by what they have perceived to be the Pope wanting to have it both ways on this conflict, that is expressing deep sympathy with Ukraine, but also sort of going soft on Putin. Ukrainian Greek Catholics in particular, for them, there's a whole history here. They felt abandoned by the Vatican during the Cold War, and they are going to hesitate to get into a full upright and locked position about the Vatican as a mediator now. So on both sides of the conflict, the Pope faces a tough sell in trying to position himself as somebody who could bring peace. But I think Francis believes he has to give it a shot. He is morally, spiritually, historically obligated to give his last best effort to try to bring about a peaceful end to this conflict. We will see how this plays out. All right, that is our show for this week. Obviously, you'll find full coverage of these and many other stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com. Again, cruxnow. Dot com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. We will be here next week, next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, have a fantastic and blessed week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will talk to you again soon.